millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is made by Just Speak and Popsock Media with Renews. The stories shared here represent individual opinions and experiences, and some names have been changed. This episode contains references to drug addiction, eating disorders, racism, suicide and violence. If you choose to listen, please take care. Prison isn't a nice place. You don't need to listen to a podcast to figure that out. And it isn't meant to be a nice place. Prisons are punitive. That means they're meant to punish those who break the law in the hopes that that will make them think twice about doing it again. Except that it doesn't work that well. It's well established that incarceration isn't a deterrent for most crimes. In fact, prison can be a criminogenic environment, increasing a person's risk of engaging in crime in the future. Most of the people we've spoken to for this series have managed to make huge changes in their lives and are now healthier, more connected, and are even in a place where they can help others who are struggling like you, Tommy. Yeah, and surely that's the goal, right? So I guess the next question is, what made the difference? That's what we're going to be hearing about in this episode. Kia ora, I'm Anna Scottney. And I'm Tommy Doran. Welcome back to True Justice, a podcast advocating for a more just justice system for Aotearoa. You're not going to lock people up forever, and we don't. What do you need to do to get them back? It's a lot easier to be fed and treated badly in prison than accept how badly you can be treated out of prison. It's not like you just do your prison time and then you get on with life. 100%. I did the crime. I did the time. But when does that end? No matter how deep the hole, there's always a way out. Always. Let's start this episode with Olivia. We first met her back in episode two. She was originally sent to men's prisons back in 2012, and that was really tough on her. Being different and being a minority within a minority, I think I was an extreme inconvenience. Yeah, Olivia spent a lot of energy worrying about her safety. And because she was the safest when kept alone, she couldn't access any programs. Plus, without other women around her, it was impossible to build community. And that's where I started the process of transitioning through to a woman's prison. Since 2014, corrections have used a self-determination model when it comes to housing trans inmates. So they're supposed to be placed in a facility that enables the maintenance of their gender identity. But the process can be more complicated than that. Often, a trans prisoner will first be processed in a prison matching their sex assigned at birth, and they need to apply in writing if they want to change. There are several media reports of those applications going nowhere or taking a really long time to be actioned, and of trans prisoners being put into dangerous situations as a consequence of how the policy has been applied. 
So it's by no means a perfect policy, but it's better than it was back when Olivia was inside, when a trans prisoner could only move prisons if they'd had a gender affirmation surgery. At the time, that process came with more than a 40-year wait list. But Olivia was determined to move. She got some forms filled out by her GP on the outside and found two supporting referees to confirm that she'd identified as trans for a period of time. She also had blood tests to check her hormone levels. Which is understandable because it was a kind of a grey area where it never had happened before. So it was paving the way for other people like myself to be able to do that. And it all paid off. In 2014, Olivia was transferred to the Auckland Region Women's Corrections Facility. And it was completely different. I was treated just like a normal prisoner. After 16 months in men's prisons, life at the women's prison was a lot better. For one thing, Olivia got to feel the sun on her skin for the first time in 10 months. We had a huge yard at the women's prison and we were playing and I was just going around and meeting people. That night we were locked down. I didn't realise it, but I was completely sunburnt. And it wasn't even a hot day, I was just burnt. She also found her community. We used to cook our own meals. So you were given all your vegetables and your meat portion daily. And then if you were in low or minimum security down, you know, in where I was housed, you could make whatever you wanted with that food. And so a lot of people would get together and would cook like a family. You know, each unit was quite family orientated. And it's something that I can honestly say I miss is the culture. You know, there was Pacific Island, Māori, and they would do kapahaka at night on, in our unit, or we would sing waiatas before we went to bed. Those things, you know, when I first encountered them, I had tears in my eyes. So there's a few important things to mention here. The first is that not everyone has had such a good experience in the same prison. Auckland Women's Prison has been in the news over the last few years because of the mistreatment of people in their care. Mihi Bassett, Karma Cripps and another woman were gassed with pepper spray and were forced to lie face down in their cells before being fed. They were unlawfully detained for months in a segregation unit, which they call the Pound. A complaint was made about this mistreatment to the prison inspectorate in February 2020 and then it all became public when RNZ broke the story in November. Over a year after the initial complaint, Corrections Minister Calvin Davis finally told his department its treatment of women was unacceptable. He demanded changes to culture and practices at the prison and in all New Zealand women's prisons. Davis issued a public apology to the woman for harm caused to them, but by that point, so much damage had already been done. And this goes back to what Kylie was saying about the justice system not being a monolith. Because over here, we've got Olivia finding her community and sharing meals. Meanwhile, in the segregation unit of the same prison, other wahine Māori have been routinely degraded. So I never experienced the high security or medium security units. So I feel that's a lot of the time where the major issues are at the women's prison. Luckily, Olivia was in low security and she now felt safe enough to leave her cell and join some programs. I was desperate. I had been held back from doing anything for about 16 months in a men's prison. I was traumatised. I just put my name down for everything. 
In her first year and a half in the women's prison, Olivia got her forklift licence, her digger and tractor licence, studied a bit of horticulture and became a personal trainer. My needs were met, I was treated with respect, I was put on programmes, I got an education. I did the programmes and I and I ticked the necessary boxes I need, needed to. Here's my bro Blaine again. I got to do Wellington on a plate with Martin Bosley, you know, like we were eating crayfish and kingfish in, in prison, you know, so I definitely can't complain. Maybe a touch of white privilege in that, but um, I, did, I did everything right to get to that point. But it was like, it doesn't mean it was easy, you know? It was fucking hard. Real hard. In case you don't remember, Blaine's my mate who came back from Aussie addicted to meth and got sentenced for conspiracy to supply soon after. Blaine's actually been in and out of prison 21 times all up, and 19 of those were recalls for breaching parole after he'd been released from his main custodial sentence, a 17-month lag at Rematuka Prison. So he's probably got thoughts about being held in prison on remand versus going there with an actual sentence, am I right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He can't stand remand having no programs and nothing to do, but also just all the waiting and wondering when your sentencing might actually come. So compared to all that, he way preferred his 17-month lag. You get like a cell, mm. it's probably about this big, you've mm. got like a nice, you know, it's a lot nicer, mm. and you've got shit you can work towards. After that last lag, Blaine made a promise to himself. I'll never go back, that's for sure. Fuck, I'll never go back. So Tommy, one thing that I kind of keep picking up on is how our perceptions of ourselves and what other people expect of us, they sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy and it feels like that's especially true within the justice system. Is that fair to say? Yeah, hard out. So I actually love a good theory and what you're talking about is called labelling theory. So labelling theory came about in the mid-1960s and it basically says that some efforts to reduce crime actually move offenders closer to a life of crime because of the labels placed on them during this process. And I guess the theory in that case is that a person can't help but internalise the label so it's like if you think I'm a criminal, bro, I'll show you a criminal. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think the power of labelling and expectation can go in the other direction too that by taking away those negative labels and sending faith and trust and respect towards a person who's made mistakes, you know, we can really encourage them to grow and change. And that's how it's been for me as well in recent years. Yeah, it makes such a massive difference to be believed in, eh, bro? Yeah, hard out. So Kylie Quince actually had a really mean yarn about this. So just as a reminder, Kylie is the dean of the AUT Law School. At one time through her legal mahi, Kylie found herself representing this boy with a really serious offending background who was heading out into the community on parole. And we're talking about someone from a, an intergenerational gang background, no education, really challenging home circumstances, gang tattoos all over his face. So Kylie asked him, what's next for you in life? And he looked up at me and he said, I want to be a civil engineer. And I nearly fell off my chair. I just thought that was just the most phenomenal thing that he could say, I want to be a civil engineer. Having come from all of that, you know, you might as well say I want to be president of the United States, you know. Um, But I thought that was amazing. And then we could have this conversation about stuff that he genuinely knew nothing about. So he had this little kernel of an idea and we could talk about exactly what that's going to require of him. All the while acknowledging it's going to be really, really 
difficult, you know. I thought, wow, I hope, I hope that happens. One of the most common narratives that we hear, anyone that's involved with offenders and inmates, is the very common story about expectations of failure, of not belonging, of um, disconnection from school particularly. Individual teachers who say, you will never become anything, you are stupid. The overwhelming majority of people in those spaces have had people say those things to them. So the flip side of that is that if you say something positive and affirming and aspirational, people actually remember that too. So someone told that boy that this thing that you're interested in is called engineering and this is what's required, you know, and and people will latch onto it. So for good or for bad, yeah, I think the moral of that story really is that, you know, minor encounters, people never forget For Olivia, being given more trust and respect in prison changed everything because she wanted to work harder to keep those freedoms. Yep, I became a mentor and I was able to move freely throughout the prison and I was in a working unit so I was I always had a job. And the time went really quickly and I ended up with so many qualifications. I ended up working outside on the external grounds and I was a team leader. I think for that four or five hours that you're outside, you did not. I didn't feel like a prisoner. I also felt respected and trusted again. And that helped me when I ended up reintegrating back into society. Every year, thousands of people are released from prison, on parole or with electronic monitoring or under correction supervision, with conditions on things like where they can live, who they can associate with and where they can work. Most of them need support on release, or reintegration support, as those in justice mahi call it. So reintegration covers anything from someone getting enrolled with a GP, setting them up with wins, helping people while they apply for jobs, and getting them into a sustainable living situation. But with housing being a major issue in Aotearoa at the moment, finding a whare is tough. Yeah, and usually one of the conditions for release is that you need to provide an address for where you plan to live. There is some supported accommodation to help with the transition run by organisations like the Sallies and Te Pā. And some awesome housing initiatives led by iwi, like Te Whare Whakaruru Hau Orau Manuka in Lower Hutt, which is a collab between Ngāti Toa, Te Atiawa and Corrections. But not everyone can access reintegration housing, and there's just not enough to go around. Many a times I didn't know where I was going when I got out. This is my bro Paul again. I just had to make up the address and then, okay, I'm going to live at that address, but, you know, I don't, you know, I just want it out, unless you've got family help or friends, Um, like these organisations that try, but even they are stuck for resources, you know, know, so you go back to your old circle and um, you go back to what you know. Because that's the only thing that you know how to survive, you know. So Tommy, if you're not being released into reintegration accommodation or into a rehab, then what happens? You're really just kind of left to figure it out for yourself. And most of the time you get dropped off at your local train station. They give you an FPOS card now with your $350 on it. And then they send you on your way. $350 isn't 
that much, eh? And it's my understanding that's a one-off grant. So that's what you get to start your life all over again. Yeah, yeah, and it really doesn't go that far these days at all. When I went to jail, housing was like 300 and maybe 320 a week for an apartment in the city. When I got out of prison, it was like 550. I was like, oh my God. You know, I thought it was bad enough that Samsung had released four smartphones, but the price of rent was like astronomical. If I was in Parliament, the first thing that I would change would be the amount of money you got when you were released because it has not increased. And that I got $350 when I was released from prison and it wasn't enough then, so it's definitely not enough now. The $350 release grant has actually stayed the same for 30 years. Adjusting for inflation, it should be at least $800 by now. Some people will get out of prison with more money to their name because of something called the Release to Work programme. What's the Release to Work programme? So it basically means you're working out in the community and earning a proper wage while you're still serving your sentence. And half of the people that get to do it end up continuing at their job after they leave prison. But it's not available to everyone. You need to be nearing your release date, coming from minimum security, and in Correction's own words, you need to have proven you can be trusted and are highly motivated and eager to work. Olivia thinks that release to work needs to be available to more people. I think anyone over a two-year sentence or three-year sentence, their last six months of their sentence should be work to release, and I think it's just finding um, companies that can get on board with that. That way you've got six grand or you've got five grand in your back pocket, as opposed to 350. Olivia was released from prison in 2017. So I was really lucky. I went to parole board and I had the support of Higher Ground and they offered me um, to go back and live in their reintegration house. When it comes to addressing addiction-related drivers into prison, most experts agree that rehab is a big part of the puzzle. But rehab can be hard to get into, both inside and outside of prison. Outside of prison, going private can be way too expensive, but waiting for access to a public rehab can take forever. There's just not enough help. The organisations that do exist are doing amazing work on a shoestring, like Higher Ground Rehabilitation Trust in Auckland, where Olivia went. Olivia shared that she had some shaky moments after leaving prison, which is normal for someone in recovery, but sometimes it was processes tied to her prison time which threatened to throw her off her recovery path. For example, she told us when she was checking in with her probation officer, she kept running into people from her dealing days. It was just really uncomfortable. I just said to them, look, every time I come here, I'm bumping into people I used to supply drugs to and most of them are still using and it's really confronting and it's probably not the best environment to put a recovering addict back amongst addicts. And luckily for Olivia, her probation officer was really understanding. And she didn't allow me to go in and do centre check-ins. They came and saw me. It wasn't like, oh, okay, you've done your time now. Go and do your thing. It was like, you can't just be left to your own devices. In the end, Higher Ground was exactly what Olivia needed to really turn her life around. I addressed a lot, if not all, of my underlining issues that led me to my drug addiction. Being sober long enough 
I had a moment where I was like, I actually deserve better than how I was treating myself and the life that I had chose. This might feel like a happily ever after moment, but it's not quite. Because even though we're really fond of saying things like, you do the crime, you do the time, the reality for those who've been incarcerated is that their time doesn't finish when they're released. The punishment keeps on giving. Yeah, and you know, even eight years on, after getting my shit together and getting clean and um, having been through the, the prison system, you're still faced with the consequences of your actions today. Like, there's so many limitations that I have. It seemed like punishment after punishment after punishment. It's not like you just do your prison time and then you get on with life. This is Becca, who gave birth in handcuffs. Because it affects jobs, it affects travel, it affects insurance, you know, it, it doesn't go away. This is what gets called the silent sentence, and experts say its effects can remain forever. In 2004, the Clean Slate Act was brought in to try and fix this. But it doesn't apply to anyone who served a custodial sentence in prison, like me, or even in the community with an ankle bracelet. It also only kicks in after seven years if you manage to avoid any new convictions at all. So if you can't get a clean slate, then every time you apply for a house or a job, there's always that little box that you have to tick. Have you ever received a criminal conviction? Yes. So at every turn, you're having to tell people that you have and then face their potential judgment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you turn up to a flat viewing and there's a 100 other people there. The landlord's just going to immediately throw your application in the bin if you've got a conviction, you know? 100%. And if you don't have housing, you're way more likely to go back inside, right? Yeah, exactly. And one study in Australia actually showed that unstable housing makes you almost three times more likely to end up in prison again within a year. And there's other things too, like trying to get car insurance. You have to disclose your history again. And then lots of insurers might just refuse to offer a policy based on your criminal record. Just so I'm clear, that means that you could buy a car but not get insurance. And then what happens if you have a crash? Like, I guess I can just see how things would spiral pretty quickly and escalate in that situation. And I imagine that there's also all of the social stigma to deal with too, right? I'll let Blaine answer that one. It's real easy to fall back into the trap when all you feel like is that you're getting pushed back into the trap, you know? If I saved a bus full of kids that was on fire and I ran in there and saved all these kids, that article would still read, ex-criminal saves kids. Because, like, a normal citizen save it wouldn't read quite as good in that media, you know? And I think this ties back into labelling theory, into how other people's expectations of you can become self-fulfilling. 100%. I did the crime. I deserved the time. But when does that end? And that's where a lot of trans people or st- street people, that's, they continue that vicious cycle. You know, I've got a pretty thick skin and I can handle quite a lot. I got lucky. I had great support, you know, towards the end. And there's a lot of people that don't. And I think that's, you know, a major contributor to mental health and reoffending because it's a lot easier to be fed and treated badly in prison than accept how badly you can be treated out of prison.
Kylie Quince from the AUT Law School said something else that ties into all of this, which is that a lot of the language around rehab, etc., has the prefix re. Rehabilitation, reintegration. But that presumes that a person has had a healthy, connected, stable life to start with, which just isn't the case a lot of the time. Yeah. Remember way back in the first episode, Becca described her lags as being relief periods from her life? You hear this a lot. For some people, prison is the first time they've had a mattress to themselves or regular meals. That's why those Section 27 cultural reports are so important, eh? Because they provide such valuable context to a person before their sentencing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what Kylie said as well. It really taps into the human element of, you know, aroha tangata. You know, this is a person talking to and about another person, asking, you know, them to show empathy and compassion for another person. Um, that's really important. So often people, that they know they're up for a long lag and they're not actually asking for um, any compassion in relation to the lag, but they are in relation to other things. Help me, you know, help my whanau get out of this, you know, be a circuit breaker. How can we manage that? Yeah, breaking the circuits of violence, poverty, trauma, imprisonment, it's all such a monumental task, eh? Yeah, for sure. And it's never going to be as simple as, you know, sending someone to rehab and they're totally recovered or telling someone you believe in them and they never mess up again. Unfortunately, that's just not how it works. It's extremely hard emotionally and, and you know, it sort of impacted my wife and I pretty badly um, because we just didn't get it. This is Blaine's dad, David who's been a first-hand witness to the impacts of Blaine's addiction. Back when Blaine came home from Australia, David watched his son going through some heavy stuff. He was depressed, paranoid and having psychotic episodes. And then you find out what's going on and try and talk on a rational level, but it won't work with somebody who's prone to, you know, psychosis and the behaviours that go with it, the mood swings, the stealing the credit cards. Um, the punching holes in the, in, the, in the wall. I'm sorry, but this is, you know, this all happened. Blaine's behaviour got worse and worse until eventually David interrupted Blaine attempting suicide. The police, the ambulance and the fire brigade all turned up that night and then eventually... The CAT team arrives, the mental health team, and sits down uh, with your loved one and says, well, he's fine. And you say, well, <laughs> he's not fine. He's not fine, he just tried to end his life. And, you know, it was premeditated, it was all worked out. He wasn't fine at all. David used to work in advertising, but watching his son struggle the way he did inspired him to completely change careers. The same year of Blaine's suicide attempt, David and his wife started a lobby group called Pipe Down, which advocates for more resources for addicts and their families. Out of that grew Red Door Recovery. So I actually went through Red Door Recovery myself and it's a small home-based rehab which houses seven people at a time and supports people coming off drugs, mainly meth, but um, any other drug as well, you know, and it's a really great place. We're a therapeutic family and we behave like a family and there's obvious benefits to that. Uh, You can't hide in a family, you know. At Red Door, there's an initial 28-day program and then two years of after-support. It's a special place where they support you to find your own pathway out of addiction. Have you seen a movie called A Street Cat Named Bob? (laughs) Yeah, he loves this movie. It's about an addict who befriends a cat. It's a true story. You should see it. It's beautiful. 
true story here. And his recovery was a cat. So if, if that works for you, then use a cat, you know. <laughs> if tough love works for you, use that. If, if, if religion works for you, use that. You know, we're all different. Some of the people that come into Red Door Recovery are coming from the community, but others are released to them from prison wearing electronic monitoring devices or bracelets. So we, we've had a lot of people in on bracelets, and we like working with that sector. And there's there's one simple thing we need for people on bail. And remember, we only accept people who are genuine. So the people, we, the, you know, we've had some people through with uh, charge sheets that would freak a lot of people out. But they want to change. They want help. David says it can be frustrating working with clients on bracelets, not for the reasons you might think but because of the extra limitations they place on the whole Red Door crew. Say it's a beautiful day and the group from Red Door wants to go for a walk by the river. Right now they need to call corrections and it might be hours and hours before this is approved, if it's approved at all. All we need is a, a bit of room to move so that they're under our supervision. I do get a phone call at 1.45 this morning from a... Um, a cop that was on our driveway saying we've got to do a bail check but it looks like all the lights are out <laughs> I said well yeah they are out because everyone's asleep and um, we've got a couple of new clients in that came in yesterday who are quite high levels of anxiety and if they were to be woken up by torches and things it's just not going to be a good result so I'm begging you just to do it at nine o'clock tomorrow night and it means a lot to David when those in the system really understand what he's trying to do and support him, rather than making his job harder. And I was really happy to hear this morning that they'd chosen to leave and nobody got woken up. I've met some really, really good people working in, in police they, who totally get it. I'm, I've got to know a few judges fairly well, um, and, and they get it. They get that this is not, recovery is not a, a linear process. The last time we heard from David's boy Blaine, he was adamant about one thing. I'll never go back, that's for sure. But unfortunately, Blaine did. So <laughs> I went back to prison for 29 days. It happened from my own errors um, and bad choices. Yeah, so this actually happened while we were making this podcast. He had a relapse back into drug use, there was an incident, and he was charged with willful damage. This time was horrible. Like, it was the worst time. It was the first time I ever went to sex. What Blaine's referring to is the segregation unit, eh, Tommy? Yeah, that's the one. I felt like this time I had no hope. Should I just keep going back to prison, or should I try to change my life and be given no chance because I, I'll never get, those chains will never be completely stripped off me. With everything David's gone through with his son, or maybe even because of it, David believes in second chances, and third and fourth chances and more. So long as a person is really trying to change, he's not going to lose hope. Well, to me, justice looks like a rehabilitation on every level. There are some truly evil people on this planet and they need to be removed from society and that's sad but they're very few everyone I've met in the last seven years through Red Door almost everyone has been a, a good person who made bad choices not a bad person 
My bro Paul is another person who's done pretty well, despite not having an address to go to after prison, and nothing but a cash card with $350 on it. Slowly now my life has turned right around. I've been clean through my last leg and since I've been out, because I've been able to apply something positive into my life, something that um, corrections or the system just didn't give me. I had to be led that way by somebody else. Paul's big change had nothing to do with the system or any programs in there, but it was because of his best mate who he met when he was inside. It was funny because he he basically said, bro, I think I found a way to get out of the crime business, you know. I was like, oh, what's going to happen here? He started sending me in um, this literature and I started reading it and then I realised that I was an addict. The stuff Paul was reading came from a 12-step programme. This is how I felt when I read this stuff too. And um, that was the first time I could actually see myself as um, an addict, you know. I have this um, disease called addiction. It was causing so much chaos in my life. And so um, yeah, me and him started working a programme. I got out of prison and um, he had already started and he took me along. And then um, through this program, you sort of learn how to um, create a better you. You learn how to live so that um, you no longer have to live a life of crime or violence. And doing this mahi along with his bro did wonders for Paul. Yeah, he always had my back. But um, it would have been hard for both of us if one of us fell off. Man, I relate to this hard out, eh? Like, 12 Steps has been a huge part of my journey, personally. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about it? Yeah, so basically it's a spiritual program and it requires you to unpack your life and find the core reasons for why you do what you do. Mm. And then you're really encouraged to, you know, sort of make amends and give back, especially to the new people coming through. And the overall purpose is to help you heal so that you can stay clean, eh? Yeah, absolutely. So 12-step programs have kept me clean way more than any of my prison legs. Wellington has a really good Narcotics Anonymous community. There's a lot of support there. And I really owe it to the program and the people I've met there for how my life is today. Far out, mate. So it's been a pretty big deal, eh? Yeah, pretty huge. So I'm more than two years clean now and I only did it because I actually had just had enough of that old life and just decided to put in the mahi. My life's amazing today compared to what it used to be. I'd lost everything important to me. My loved ones, my children, family, lost my partner, lost my home, lost my freedom. And I thought I was just destined for that. And it was a cycle that continued for years and years and years. I thought, um, I don't have a future, you know. I started doing that program and everything's changed and it changed real fast. These days, Paul works in addiction recovery. I have a job today. I'm a, I'm a supervisor and a recovery coach at a private rehab. I love that job. It's a good job. Helping people just like me. Yeah, I feel the same. I love the mahi I do with people in recovery. And I love that my time in prison and my history of addiction aren't things that made me less capable of doing this job, but rather it makes me perfect for it. Yeah, that's amazing. And Becca also said that working with people who'd been through what she had made a huge difference. So um, when I did drug court, we had peer support workers, which were people who um, lived criminal, alcohol, 
drug life experience, um, and they they were helpful. Um, you know, it was very, very, it's still very hard for me today to com- connect and open up to someone that's only qualified by study. It's easier for me to engage and be supported by someone who's lived the life. Someone who's lived the life, someone who gets it, it makes total sense. Yeah, David actually has a cool yarn along these lines as well. It's that lovely little parable about a woman who was stuck in a hole and somebody walked past and she said, I'm stuck in a hole, have you, have you got a ladder? And he, and he said, no, I don't have a ladder, sorry. Then a priest walks past and throws a Bible into the hole. And she was still in the hole and a businessman walked past and threw a hundred bucks down the hole. And another, somebody else walks past and they jump into the hole and she says, uh, WTF? Now we're both in the hole. And he says to her, but I've been here before. I know the way out. No matter how deep the hole, there's always a way out. As David said, there is always a way out. So when it comes to rehabilitation and reintegration, what do we know helps? We know that people leaving prison will do better if they're supported and connected and if they have a fair shot at getting a job and a house. Yep, so we also know that addiction and mental health are huge issues for nearly everyone in prison. So that's healthcare. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember what Kylie Quince from AUT said about how all the re-words imply someone was connected and looked after beforehand, which just isn't the case. So we need to get in before people end up in prison. Exactly. Like, nope, we're not going to let you go down that pipeline. We can see you need support, so we're going to bring in that support where you need it right now. In 2019, for every $100 spent on the criminal justice system in Aotearoa, $79 went towards prisons, probation, courts, police prosecutions and investigations. $13 went towards crime prevention. This includes the national model for NZ Police called Prevention First, which was implemented back in 2017. Just 51 cents went towards supporting victims and less than $8 towards rehabilitating offenders. That's for programs such as motivation to change, cognitive behavioural interventions, and general skills to help a prisoner return to the community. For example, parenting and practical life skills. Imagine what might happen if we could put more resources into rehab, reintegration and support. Those things have made a massive difference for every person we've spoken to. Let's finish with Paul. There was a time when he thought a better life was impossible. He'd lost his family, his home and his freedom. But those connections are beginning to heal. He used to dream of being allowed to spend time with his kids. Now that dream is real. So we go dairy hopping. I take them dairy hopping. Like a bar crawl, but... But with dairies. And lollies. For lollies, yeah. Yeah. And then at every dairy, before we allow to go in, we have to state things we're grateful for. Some of the things that they used to say that they're grateful for, you know, I'm grateful for Dad's money. And <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that 
and dad got a job so he can buy us stuff. Yeah. Then they have those moments where they're just like, um, I'm grateful to know who my dad is, or I'm grateful to know that my dad loves me. Those little gems will bring me to tears, you know. But the smart ears, like, the different, you know, they didn't grow up like me. I feel really like fulfilled when I'm with them and when I have to give them back, I break. <laughs> I've got um, many blessings in my life today because I, 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 I made a choice. I chose to um, do what I was afraid to do with hope that I could be a dad, be a son, be a brother be a good friend, maybe be a right partner, you know. Today my life's the best life I've ever had. And it may not be perfect, but it's fucking beautiful, you know. It's a real beautiful life. It's really meaningful. I love it. Coming up in the final episode of True Justice... We know that the system is broken, we know that we can do better. It's all hands on deck to answer the question, what might a truly just justice system look like? We just need to be brave enough and imaginative enough to pursue those alternatives. Why don't we spend that million dollars on the neighbourhood? <laughs> Why don't we just take that money and reinvest it? What a difference it would have made if I'd gone into a place that was like healing and welcoming and homely. We belong in communities. We long for connection, like that's just how we're made up. And I think that taking that away from people that need help is the most damaging thing to do to the community. This episode of True Justice was hosted by me, Tommy Doran. And me, Anachaya Scotney. It was produced by Just Speak, a not-for-profit organisation that advocates for transformational change in the criminal justice system. Writing and research was a team effort by staff at Just Speak and PopSock Media, as well as former Just Speak advocacy lead, Emily Rosenthal. Editing and sound design was by PopSock Media, with music from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme music, What You Can Hear Now by Kōtiro, that's me with Thomas Arbor. You can find our song, All the Little Birds, on Bandcamp. Interviews and recordings with our storytellers and experts were done by Emily Rosenthal, Chantal Arfina, myself, and our amazing Just Speak volunteers. Narration, recording and mixing was by Phil Brownlee at Victoria University's Miramar Creative Centre. Our journalistic and legal checks and balances came from Francis Morton, Anna Harcourt and the legal team at TVNZ's youth news platform, RE, who supported this project. Our heartfelt thanks to all the people who shared their stories, experiences and whakaaro with us and we hope that their corridor has enlightened you to what is really happening in the criminal justice system and what true justice really looks like. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.